If Vincent van Gogh paints a painting, he painted it, right? If Bob Dylan writes a song, it's a Bob Dylan song. And Annie Leibovitz's photograph is taken by Annie Leibovitz. Rachmaninoff's third concerto is a piece of music created by Rachmaninoff. We say it's a Rachmaninoff piece, even though for us to hear it, it needs to be conveyed by an orchestra full of people. I think you're getting the point. With a lot of art, most art perhaps, you can pinpoint the creative force behind it, whether it be Bob Dylan or Annie Leibovitz or Sergei Rachmaninoff. Dylan may have a backing band, Leibovitz may employ retouches, and Rachmaninoff's concerto requires an orchestra, conductor and a soloist. But those undeniably talented supporting influences are essentially there to serve the creative vision of the originator. Identifying that creative focal point becomes more difficult when you talk about collaboration. Are George and Ringo less important to a hard day's night than Paul and John, even though they're all members of the Beatles? Very possibly, especially Ringo. My name is John Roebuck. I'm the editor-in-chief of realgood.com.au. Welcome to Film School. There are big-budget Hollywood productions, like the third Lord of the Rings movie or the third Pirates of the Caribbean movie, that have end credits that roll for longer than the average short film. The Matrix Revolutions listed 701 people in its closing credits. These are extreme examples but even small productions with tiny budgets can often include hundreds of cast and crew members. How do you start pinpointing who's creatively responsible when there's that many people involved? Sure, some of the credits floating up the screen will be assistant to Mr. Pitt, best boy or data wrangler. I don't want to detract from Brad Pitt's assistant's work ethic, nor the work ethic of any dedicated data wranglers out there. But you've got to admit that their creative input into a film probably veers more towards the modest side. But then you've got the director, and you've got the actors, and you've got the cinematographers, and you've got the composers. The list of people involved in a film with an enormous degree of creative input can be startling. Stop it, the police will be here any minute, now talk. Oh, how can you accuse me of such a tip? This isn't the time for that schoolgirl act. We're both of us sitting under the gallows. For a long time, People often thought about film in terms of stars. They might have referred to the Maltese Falcon as a Humphrey Bogart film, instead of a John Huston film, or a Warner Brothers film, even though Huston was the director and Warner Brothers was the production company. It's not hard to see why, considering the actors are the most obvious personal representatives of a film. But there were exceptions to this. Bosley Crowther, a film reviewer, for the New York Times, wrote of director Orson Welles and his film Citizen Kane. Count on Mr. Welles. He doesn't do things by halves. Upon the screen, he discovered an area large enough for his expansive whims to have free play. And the consequence is that he has made a picture of tremendous and overpowering scope. Not in physical extent so much as in its rapid and graphic rotation of thoughts. Mr. Welles has put upon the screen a motion picture that really moves. But by and large, 
Focusing on a director as the creative force behind a film was rare back in the day. And then one of the most significant movements in cinema history occurred, which would change the way people thought about film forever. That movement came via a French film magazine called Cahiers du Cinema. You'll have to forgive my pronunciation on a lot of the French in this episode. Every now and then, you'll come across an era of film that had a monumental impact on the direction cinema has taken since. The rise of Cahiers du Cinema is one of those eras. Cahiers really kicked off the rise of what we now call a cinephile. If you're listening to this podcast, the chances are that's a term you can relate to. Back when Cahiers started up, it was a new generation that had grown up watching films with unprecedented access to French and American films, thanks to a film archive in Paris at the Cinémathèque Française. Cahiers was founded in 1951 by a group of passionate film enthusiasts. More specifically, and again, you'll have to forgive my pronunciation, André Batsin, Jacques Stanwal Valcroce, and Joseph-Marie Loduca. It's not only responsible for launching the careers of men who would evolve from groundbreaking film critics into amazing film directors, men like Jean-Luc Godard and Francois Truffaut, but it would alter the world of film criticism irreversibly. One of the most important factors to the way Cahiers changed how people looked at film criticism is something called the auteur theory. In 1954, Cahiers du Cinema released an article by Francois Truffaut, a man who would go on to become an important director in his own right, with films like The 400 Blows and Jules and Jim. But that 1954 article would become the manifesto for something called La Politique des Auteurs. Truffaut famously wrote, There are no good and bad movies, only good and bad directors. The word auteur means author in English. The fundamental concept behind the Truffaut article was that a film is a reflection of the director. Or in other words, the director is the sole author of a film. Like a writer is an author of a novel. The idea was an extension of another French film critic's notion of the camera stylo, which is the concept that a director should wield their cameras like writers wield their pens. Truffaut would attack the work of recent French filmmakers, accusing them of lending a film nothing beyond pretty pictures and dialogue. He coined the term la qualité française, usually translated roughly as the tradition of quality, which referred to the war and post-war era of French cinema that was more focused on plot and literature rather than craft or mise-en-scène. This sort of cinema tended to win over the mainstream critical establishment. Truffaut's article hit out against this creative lethargy that he felt was pervading French cinema, drawing attention to filmmakers such as Jean Renoir, Orson Welles, Howard Hawks, and Alfred Hitchcock as genuine authors of cinema. Filmmakers that managed to imprint a personal sense of style into their work. These were filmmakers, according to Truffaut, that were producing cinema rife with a unique 
directorial and artistic vision. Such a focus on the importance of the director in filmmaking was extraordinarily rare before this point. One of the key focuses of Truffaut's theories was the importance of mise-en-scene in great filmmaking. The term mise-en-scene in films refers to everything that appears in the framing, the actors, lighting, decor, costumes and props. The framing and camera work are also considered elements of mise-en-scene. It's not a production term in the sense that filmmakers would never talk about changing the mise-en-scene while they're walking around set. It's the culmination of the collaboration between a lot of cinematic professionals. Robert Rene's The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is an example of mise-en-scene that's deliberately designed to invoke dread and horror. The design is distorted shapes and the scenery deliberately claustrophobic. Mise-en-scene is a difficult concept to get your head around because it's essentially almost every single visual element of a film. Truffaut, in his article, championed the filmmakers that he believed manipulated mise-en-scene artistically. Truffaut believed that the tradition of quality and auteuristic cinema simply could not coexist. He thought that even the best of the tradition of quality type films, this old guard of cinema, would be less interesting than the worst film of an auteur. A lot of these filmmakers that Truffaut was championing had been regarded as audience-savvy entertainers, more like showmen than artists. Before this re-evaluation, directors saw themselves as being in charge of production, and some directors' names were even used in advertising material as an assurance of a film's quality. But Truffaut's work got the snowball rolling on a complete re-evaluation of cinema, and who's responsible for the art of cinema? The impact of Truffaut's article is ongoing. The article was the basis for the auteur theory. And it's why, when we try to pinpoint the creative drive of a contemporary film, we often, erroneously or otherwise, point to the director of a film. Here's a quote from a New Yorker article by Richard Brody about this shift in film appraisal that was happening during the 1950s amongst the people behind Cahiers du Cinema. They weren't the first to recognise that directors are artists, yet their writings proved very controversial for four reasons. First, they didn't emphasise movie stories. They didn't ignore them, but they didn't take political subjects and the adaptations of major literary works to be of any greater intrinsic importance than crime stories, love stories, comedies, westerns or musicals. Second, they largely considered acting, cinematography and the other elements of production in terms of their reflection of the director's art. Third, they considered some Hollywood directors working in the industry and serving its commercial ends to be the equals of European filmmakers, working within an expressly humanistic tradition, which is why they came to be known as Hitchcock-O-Hawksians. Fourth, they saw the art of the cinema as the exemplary art of the era, and so considered directors to be the leading artists of the day. There was also a fifth, strictly local reason. They considered most of the major French directors of the time to be terrible filmmakers and denounced them and their films with flamboyant invective. Sometime in the early 1960s, 
the concept of the auteur crossed the Atlantic and began to sink into American filmic consciousness. This was in no small part to a film critic called Andrew Sarris, who actually coined the term auteur theory, sticking with the French word instead of translating it to author. This lack of translation, almost certainly a result of Sarris thinking that French sounds fancier, engendered a whole new internationally recognised meaning for the word auteur. Sarris, in his essay Notes on Auteur Theory in 1962, puts forward an argument for assessing cinema by way of directors. Sarris outlined three central necessities for determining whether a director is an auteur or not. The premises of auteur theory. First, technical competence. A great director must at least be a good director, with the elementary skills of the craft. Second, the director must have a distinguishable personality that pops up constantly throughout their body of work. Hitchcock, Tarantino, and others took this a bit literally, perhaps, continually appearing in their own films. Third, an auteur should imbue his or her films with interior meaning that could be comprehended by the relationship between the auteur's personality and the material he had to work with. But Saris's thoughts on the auteur were not universally celebrated. Among the naysayers, most notably, was the famous film critic Pauline Kael. Saris and Kael's back and forth regarding the auteur theory was a famous rivalry in the world of film criticism. Kael's argument was that if a film works, then who cares if the director meets the prerequisite necessities of auteurship as outlined by Saris. On Saris's second premise, that the director must have a distinguishable personality throughout their body of work, Kale asked why we shouldn't judge a movie on its own merits. Here's a quote from Kale: When a famous director makes a good movie, we look at the movie. We don't just think about the director's personality. When he makes a stinker, we notice his familiar touches because there's not much else to watch. A film is a film, Kale proposed. Should it be necessary to watch all the other works of the filmmaker to understand the style? Judge the artist by the movie and not the other way around. There could be a happy, neutral ground between the two schools of thought. A film should be judged on its own merit. A film can often be appreciated for exactly the reasons that Saris outlined. Vertigo is a remarkable film for many reasons. I personally believe that my appreciation of Alfred Hitchcock, the director, is one of the reasons I admire that film so much. Where auteurism becomes a bit shaky is in that collaborative nature of filmmaking that I mentioned before. It's a simplistic concept. The auteur theory also diminished the role that others play in films. It also ignores the lack of consistency that's inherent in the filmmaking process. Every film undergoes a different production process. There's no set method. The understanding of an auteur has evolved over the years. Auteurs aren't necessarily directors anymore. Think about the work of screenwriter Charlie Kaufman, who wrote Adaptation and The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Or the work of cinematographer Emmanuel Lebesky, who shot Gravity, Birdman and The Revenant. Their work has enough influence on each of their films that I don't think it's too much of a stretch to consider them auteurs. If, that is, you subscribe to the concept of an auteur. Here's a quote from Saris, a bit later in life, when the rivalry between he and Kale had cooled down somewhat. 
Auteurism is and always has been more a tendency than a theory, more a mystique than a methodology, more an editorial policy than an aesthetic procedure. The cinema is a deep, dark mystery that we auteurists are attempting to solve, and what is infinitely more difficult, to report our findings in a readable prose. The cinema is a labyrinth with a treacherous relation to reality. I've talked on this podcast before about cinephiles and their relentless need to define. Perhaps Saris is wrong when he says he's trying to solve the deep, dark mystery of cinema. Because since when is art solvable? It's still fun to talk about, and the auteur theory might not be airtight, but it is a useful starting point when it comes to film interpretation. Perhaps Saris's mistake was using the word theory, a word which suggests a certain infallibility, a pseudo-scientific approach. But cinema is too fickle to allow for infallible theories. There were 701 people involved in the Matrix revolutions. That's a lot of people to blame. John Roebuck's Film School, or My Film School, is brought to you by Real Good. Subscribe to this podcast using your favourite podcast app. For more Film School, and much more, head to realgood.com.au. This was a Trixie Studio production. Find out more at trixie.xyz.